0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. On today's program, we're talking about food insecurity and snow. And yeah, I know those things don't seem to have anything to do with one another, but that's why we do this show. Every week, we bring together two researchers from different disciplines, and we find common ground. Joining us today in studio is Gabrielle Chichorkaita, who started studying sociology at Vilnius University in Lithuania, and whose work investigates the intersection of gender, race, and socioeconomic status on the health of vulnerable populations from India to Appalachia. Hi, Gabrielle. Hi, Matthew. Also joining us today by phone is Melissa Regin, a lover of Good Hikes, Great Beer, and a new postdoc at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Melissa, thanks for being on our program.
1: Hi, thank you.
0: I'm excited to be here. First up today, the medical sociologist. Okay, so just about everybody I know has had this experience. You haven't eaten a while, maybe your blood sugar is low, maybe your stomach is growling, and you just can't focus. All right, now imagine feeling like that all the time, or imagine that you don't know where your next meal is going to come from at all, or think about how you would feel if you didn't know how your children were going to eat later this week. Would that take a toll on your mental health? Well, yeah, of course it would. And our first guest believes we need to better understand the connections between mental health and food insecurity. Gabrielle Chitrakaita's recent work includes an article on food insecurity, psychological distress, and alcohol use in Health Sociology Review. In that study, she expands on her previous work on gendered differences in mental health outcomes for people experiencing food insecurity. Gabrielle, can we start with a little framing? Can you talk a little bit about what is food insecurity?
2: Yeah, of course. You already gave a really nice introduction about experiences of hunger and how that might negatively affect your health. So food insecurity is actually very different from hunger, even though they are related. So food insecurity is a household-level measurement, while hunger is this very individual-level unpleasant experience. So the definition of food insecurity is it's a limited or uncertain Availability of nutritionally adequate or safe food, or uncertain availability to acquire food in socially acceptable ways, meaning that if in your household you're not starving but you're getting food with the help of food banks or SNAP, which we used to call food stamps, your household could still be considered food insecure because there are these stressful and stigmatized maybe ways that you have to rely on to get your
0: food. And there's a lot of people in this situation, right? This is millions and millions of people.
2: Right. So when we think food insecurity, we think developing world and not really the U.S., which is sort of this country of plenty and, you know, maybe too much food is really our problem, but that's not the case. And even though the majority of households in the U.S. are food secure, about 12% are not, and that's about 15 million of households. And those are households that also involve children, which... For developmental health, that might be particularly detrimental.
0: Because food's super important for our brains.
2: Yes, that's true.
0: Where where did your interest in food insecurity come from? How did you start studying this aspect of sociology?
2: As a PhD student, I was a research assistant for a faculty member who was a rural sociologist. One of his interests was local agro-food social movements. And as I was working uh, with him and doing research on it, I started finding these articles that have found an association between food insecurity and obesity among women but not men. And so then as a sociologist, my next question was, hmm, there must be something going on with respect to gender. And so then I started looking at other different health outcomes and my collaborator, Robin Brown, who I've done this work with, is a mental health scholar. So that's how mental health has become our primary outcome of interest thus far.
0: Now, there's a lot of work that's been done on how food insecurity impacts mental health, Uh but not a lot of people had looked at whether the impact was different for men and women. Why do you think that is? Why, Why was that ignored for so long?
2: The majority of studies that have been done on food insecurity and mental health have focused on small samples of either women with small children, um, women who receive welfare benefits, and those are the populations that are more vulnerable to be food insecure, which is, I think, why research focused on them. But we sort of wanted to see how that relationship works in large samples that involve men and women both and also we were curious to see if this stressful experience would affect men differently than women
0: And that's what you found.
2: Yes, that is what we found. Um, And so we decided to look at two health outcomes, depressive symptoms and alcohol use, because as it turns out, even though men and women do experience similar levels of psychological distress, they manifest in different ways because of our upbringing and socialization, where women tend to experience internalized disorders such as anxiety and depression. For men, they are more likely to experience alcohol abuse. Drug abuse, uh, aggressive behaviors. And so, what we found is that the effect of food insecurity on mental health is stronger for women, but we did not find any gender interaction with respect to alcohol use. So, if
0: I have food insecurity and you have food insecurity, and there's a lot of men like me and there's a lot of women like you, our rates of alcoholism are going to be fairly similar across the population?
2: No, it just means that. If I live in a food insecure household, that toll eventually might lead me to experience depression. However, you may not end up being a drunk. <laughs>
0: More recently, you found that while having kids is generally protective against depression for women, those protective effects are diminished when women experience food insecurity. And when I read that, I thought, oh, wow, that that makes so much sense. Can you pack that a little bit for us? Why do you think that we see this sort of effect?
2: That was a little bit strange because um, generally research finds that individuals who have children have worse mental health because having children is stressful from what I know based on research and not personal experience. But here we found that when controlling for food insecurity, the effect of having children was protective from depression and alcohol use. But in households that were food insecure, those effects were diminished. And I think it's just because food insecurity is a stressor, right? That's how we conceptualize it. And when it interacts with other potential stressors in our lives, We just experience more negative health outcomes.
0: Well, if you have kids and you're food insecure, it's going to be really terrifying. Yeah. What can this research help us do now that we have these data? What can we do with it moving forward? What would you like to see done with it moving forward?
2: So the majority of research on this topic has been done using cross-sectional data, meaning data collected at one point in time, which is why we cannot infer any causal effects. So it would be nice to see studies done using longitudinal data. And there is also some evidence to suggest that there is a bidirectional association, meaning that food insecurity might lead to worse mental health, but poor mental health might also lead to food insecurity. So it would be interesting to kind of figure out how that association really works.
0: That's medical sociologist Gabrielle Chichorkaita. Gabrielle, can you stick around more and chat with us a little bit at the end of the show? Yes, of course.
1: The shush, or downhill run. It is the quickest way to get to the bottom. It is so named because of its peculiar sound. Shush!
0: That, of course, is the most important ski movie ever made, Disney's The Art of Skiing. And as every skier knows, it's not easy to make the shush without plenty of snow. And to that end, my next guest has some good news. A recent estimate published in Geophysical Research Letters suggests that snow accumulation is about 50% higher across North America than previously thought. About 1,200 cubic miles, that would be enough snow to cover the entire state of Utah with 70 feet of snow. Melissa Regin, how did we have this so wrong before? How did we not know that there was this much snow on our continent? (laughs)
1: That's a great question. It doesn't actually mean there's all of a sudden all this new snow that we didn't know about. Instead, it's that our global models, our large-scale models, they really just weren't capturing the snow correctly, particularly the mountain snow. What we did was try to use a higher-resolution regional climate model to get a more reasonable and a more realistic estimate of mountain snow accumulation.
0: So it seems like it would be important to know how much water, frozen, solid, or saltier in whatever state, there is in a given place. Am I right about that being important? And
1: Yeah, it's certainly super important. I think the example that is always used in snow hydrology, at least, is California. So the Sierra Nevadas, they accumulate all this snow in the winter. But then in the warmer months, we're trying to irrigate. They're trying to water their lawns and, you know, fill up swimming pools use really peaks in the summer, and luckily that happens to be when the snow is melting. So we get this higher river runoff due to snowmelt, which coincides with our increased human consumption. So, you know, the state of California really wants to know how much snow is actually up in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Their everyday livelihoods really depend on it. But, of course, ecosystems, the snow is important for that. Uh, Snow is bright white. It reflects a lot of energy back to space so it's important for kind of keeping our planet at a reasonable temperature yeah it's certainly super important to understand and have a good estimate of how much snow is actually out there
0: okay you just blew my mind because i've never even thought about that snow reflects light back into outer space i mean i think if you told me snow keeps our planet cool i'd be like yeah because it's cold but it's it's actually (laughs) reflecting radiated light away from us is that right did i get that right
1: yeah so if you think about it if you're out in the snow you know or snowboarding and you're out in a bright sunny day the snow is actually reflecting some of that sunlight back into your eyes and you get all squinty uh, it's also why you can get sunburn out in the snow because it's going to be reflecting some of that energy back to you so when we have the Arctic or mountain ranges where we have a lot of snow cover it's bright white it's reflecting that back to space and that's our really important our snow albedo feedback once snow starts melting we can see the darker land surface underneath we're starting to see dirt and rocks and trees And those darker colors actually absorb more energy than snow does. So, yeah, snow is a super critical part of our climate
0: system. And yet we don't really have a very good idea, or we didn't have a very good idea worldwide of how much snow is on the planet, ergo how much water is on the planet. Why not?
1: (laughs) We have a lot of satellites that have given us a really nice 30-, 40-year record of our snow cover. So we had a good idea of the snow-covered area. But the problem with satellites is it can be difficult to estimate snow depth. But if you want to know actually how much water is in the snow, you don't only need snow covered area, you also need snow depth. So that's why in snow hydrology we often turn to models to try to estimate what we call the snow water equivalent, basically the depth of water that's in the snowpack if you were to melt it out. Now models are really great and we've had them for a couple decades now, but you know, if you're trying to model the entire planet, and it takes a lot of data to do that. So our in these coarse global models, the resolution is too coarse to be able to actually capture what's going on. So that's why we use a regional model. So we're able to run it at a lot higher spatial resolution, and we're able to get more realistic topography. Our model runs are giving us a pretty reasonable idea of what's going on in the mountains of North America.
0: So... Where is most of the snow in North America?
1: From our model simulations, we actually showed that the majority of the snow water equivalent is not in the continental United States, despite the fact that a lot of research likes to focus on the Sierra Nevadas, the Cascades, and the Pacific Northwest. Those are all regions that water resources are really important to people, but really it's more northern mountain ranges, like the Canadian Rockies and the Coast Range of British Columbia, the Alaska Range. These are big mountain ranges that just accumulate a ton of snow every winter. So really, the bulk of North America's mountain snow is actually in Canada or up in Alaska.
0: Now, to do all of this work, it literally took a supercomputer to figure this out, right?
1: Yeah, we were really fortunate to be able to get some time on one of NASA's supercomputers. If we had tried to run all of our model simulations just like on my laptop, it would have taken at least 50 years of consecutive running, so pretty not feasible for a PhD where you're only supposed to be there, you know, four or five years. We had to use a supercomputer and it takes a lot of computer processing power, it's a lot of data storage. Something like this definitely wouldn't be possible without a supercomputer.
0: How cool is it to be able to just drop into conversation the words NASA supercomputer?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel pretty nice, yes.
0: No, I, I wanted to make something clear. This research does mean that there's more snow in general that we thought, but it doesn't mean that there's more snow now than there was in the past, right? I mean, this isn't fodder for climate change deniers, right?
1: Oh, correct. It's not like the amount of snow that accumulates in the winter suddenly changed. That snow is always there. We are just now representing it better than we had previously been doing in global models. We're just looking at the recent past just trying to actually understand well how much snow is actually out there now because snow is a critical part of our water budget you know we don't actually understand it fully
0: and just to to drive on the point i mean our glaciers are still well they're in trouble right
1: yeah there are glaciers all over the world that are melting at unprecedented rates we don't study glaciers in our model. It's not really built for that, but yeah, definitely still glaciers are disappearing and melting very fast.
0: Understood. So when you when you put out this this data that says, oh wow, we have this much water and this is actually where it is, who are the people who like reach into that and go, oh, that's going to be very useful for my line of work?
1: I think it's something that could be useful for actually like global model developers because clearly we're showing that this this regional model is able able to capture certain processes that global models are missing. We have some results that indicate it really isn't just about spatial resolution. So there's other things missing in some global models that mean they can't capture mountain snow like we want them to. So if we can improve our global models, we'll get better predictions of different future scenarios with climate change. You would think water resource managers would be really excited about this, but they actually already kind of a good idea of how much snow accumulates anyway, because they're you know, they're like the front line of annual snow accumulation because they have to be ready so they can make sure that their community is going to have enough water to get through the summer. But maybe some of our work helps back up what they already know, that our global models are kind of missing this key aspect of the water cycle.
0: Well, it certainly would help for us for a greater understanding of how much water is being lost in the system, right? I mean, if... if For instance, if we have a model here in Utah of how much water is being created and only a fraction of that's coming down the hill, we know there are other avenues for, pardon the pun, but tapping into it, right?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. That's one way it could be used.
0: Do you ski? Do you snowboard? Are you into snow? Do you get fan letters from snow sports enthusiasts?
1: (laughs) I was probably one of the few people in our research group that did not like the snow, (laughs) I've only gone skiing once, and I was really bad, and I was fortunate to get a free ski lesson because I was so bad. But it was a lot of fun. It's just cold, so I moved further south for my postdoc to try to get a little bit further away from the snow.
0: <laughs> That's hydroclimatologist Melissa Regin. Melissa, can you stick around for a chat with someone equally as cool as you are?
1: Sure, happy to.
0: Okay, so it is my great joy to make this introduction. Melissa, this is Gabrielle. She's helping us understand the ways in which food insecurity impacts people's mental health.
1: Hi, Melissa. Hi, Gabrielle.
0: And Gabrielle, this is Melissa. She recently figured out that we've been wrong about how much snow there is in North America, and we've been wrong for a very long time. So, Melissa, let's start with you. You were listening in while Gabrielle was describing her work. What stood out for you? Did it spark an idea or a question?
1: One thing that kind of popped into my mind was whether your studies have looked into different geographical regions or even like an urban-rural divide or anything.
2: No, uh, I have not. I've just looked at the U.S. without looking any at any geographic variations. But people have done that, and there definitely are differences that just has not really been part of what I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, I, I only question that because I'm thinking if, and I don't know, this could totally be wrong. I live in urban areas, but mm-hmm. I imagine in rural areas, if you're experiencing food insecurity, if maybe you could try to help that somewhat by growing your own garden or something. And then as a hydrologist, that just makes me think of droughts and we might have more frequent droughts in the future with climate change um, and how even that could then create more food insecurity because then people can't even have their own gardens if we're not getting enough precipitation.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And um, so we, I think, like to think that maybe living in rural areas might be easier because of the reasons that you've mentioned, but that's not necessarily the case.
0: Why is that? Because I would think that too, right? Like, oh, well, you have all this land, you can go garden, and isn't that quaint and cute, and you won't go hungry.
2: Yeah, but, you know, not everyone who lives in rural areas also gardens and grows their foods and chickens and animals. (laughs) So they're still vulnerable to, to that.
0: Gabrielle, you were here as Melissa discussed her snow accumulation assessments. What came to your mind as we were chatting?
2: Well, I was really surprised that she does not like to ski. (laughs) (laughs) and as you I was jealous to hear the NASA part
0: what would you do with a supercomputer? Like if, if you could if you had access to her the supercomputer she had at NASA, is there data that you could punch in your research that that would be valuable for?
2: Yeah, so I actually thought about that a little bit because I do have friends who run some very sophisticated statistical models and they do sometimes complain that it takes them several days. I have not yet worked with such large-scale data to where I would have a problem with that, but it would be cool.
0: When we're talking about this sort of data, like, can we put it into, I don't know, like terms in terms of like, like pages or like how much data are we talking about, Melissa?
1: Oh, gosh. I want to say that my dissertation work created like 15 to 20 terabytes of data. A really good computer might have one terabyte of total storage. My personal laptop has way less than that. I know that's not a good way to think about it. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot. These climate models output way more than just snow. Our focus of snow is actually one of a very small component of the different fields that you can study with a model. So a lot of data, definitely a lot of data. Let
0: me see if I can draw a connection here. Melissa, you mentioned drought. And I got to thinking about this idea of water insecurity, which I think is already prevalent in a lot of the world. But a lot of people say that we're going to be experiencing more and more in the future. Gabrielle, is that something that we should be focusing on as well in terms of mental health aspects of of access to water?
2: Yeah, probably. Unfortunately, that's not an area that um, very I'm very well familiar with, and uh, could comment more on that. But yeah, absolutely.
0: I'd love to know what both of you are working on in your next iteration, Melissa. What's what's next for you?
1: So, for my postdoc, I'll actually be using the same climate model that I used with my PhD, but I'll be more specifically focused on California and doing future climate scenarios. So trying to understand where precipitation might be shifting or if we're going to see more or more realistically less snow accumulation, and then working with different teams to try to understand what does that mean for our hydropower generation, what does that mean for our agriculture out in California, since that area is so important for really the entire United States and a lot of the foods that we eat. So I'll be shifting from trying to create a baseline present-day estimate of mountain snow and then instead looking to the future.
0: Gabrielle, what are you going to be working on next?
2: I have a few other projects with respect to food insecurity that I am working on, and my latest interest is in um, health outcomes of food insecurity among individuals with disability because it turns out that working age adults with disability are a very vulnerable population that we have sort of previously overlooked. And as a sociologist, yet again, we see that women with disability um, have particularly detrimental health effects um, relative to their male counterparts or um, individuals without disability who experience food insecurity. So that's one of them. And I recently ran some analysis on the effects of food insecurity on sleep outcomes because it turns out that this stress... And hunger leads to shorter sleep outcomes and more complaints to your physician about sleep. And we all know that sleep is very important for our overall health. So that's another area that I want to explore a little bit more.
0: We are running out of time. So, Melissa, Regin, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined.
2: Thank you.
0: And Gabrielle Chichor Kaita, Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at undisciplined. The Undisciplined Science Show is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Dissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.